So today, we're continuing the series on the first team. Remember, we're talking about Jesus' disciples, the first team. And today's the fourth of the series that we've had so far. And after today, there's another five that we'll be looking at. If you're wondering who we're going to be speaking about over the next few weeks, the information's in the Onward newsletter, it's on our website, so you can see who's speaking, what they're speaking about. Often, for months in advance, it will tell you on our website, so you can always find things out about things there. Let's have a bit of a brief recap about what we've thought about so far, shall we? What we're trying to do is have a twofold focus on our understanding of the disciples. We're thinking, what were Jesus' 12 disciples like? And we're also thinking, what is a disciple? It's good to use the word, but we want to have a bit of an understanding, or a lot of an understanding, of what the word disciple means. And so that's our, our focus, to know what these people were like, and also what a disciple is anyway. And often I'm imagining when I'm sort of sitting around, sort of at home, reading a Bible, I'm just imagining them sitting around a table, having a chat, telling jokes, saying things that are funny or things that are serious, just being honest with each other and then learning from Jesus by his actions and by his words as well. You might remember that we had a big list of the names of the disciples Ken, again, it's not so easy to read on the screen, but all of this is on our website, all the different uh, places in the Bible where you can read what their names were and what sort of things they did. Of course, some people, some of the disciples, we read a lot about and we kind of know them quite well. Some of them we don't know so much about at all, and we'll be talking more about those today. Where is the information on the 12 disciples obtained from? Most of it, obviously, is from the Bible, the four canonical Gospels and Acts as well. And if you remember, when we've sort of listened to either me or to Paul or to Nick talking about it over the last few weeks, we've been saying, oh, they're good chaps, but... And one of the examples that we've thought about was when Jesus was in Gethsemane, that all the disciples scarpered because they were more concerned about seeking safety for themselves by flying away by running off than for what Jesus was doing. The thing was, of course, Jesus had no plan B. Our understanding, like we've been hearing people saying already, is that we'd have, had, we'd have done it differently. But Jesus had no plan B. And the great thing is, of course, if we were just going to read the Gospels, we'd get a good picture of what they did. But when we read people, the early church fathers and tradition, when we read people like uh, Eusebius, Clement of Rome, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Hippolytus, Tertullian, uh, some of these sound like diseases, don't they? Uh, Origen and Jerome. Then we can feel that the people weren't just like scarpering, but they were transformed by God because they didn't just say, that's it, I've had enough, I can't, I can't cope with this. But they followed God and did what he said. Hooray for plan A. So today, we're looking at the first team, and we're actually going to look at four people today. Now, if we're looking at Peter or John or some of the other disciples, Matthew, like last week, 
we just have time for one person because there's a lot we can talk about with all of them. These four people, though, if you look in the Bible, you're not going to find a lot about them. We're going to discuss whereabouts in the Bible they are and what about them. But these are the four disciples that we hear or understand far less from the Bible than the other disciples. Thaddeus, or is also called Judas and Jude, James, Simon the Zealot and Bartholomew, or Nathaniel. When Nick spoke a couple of weeks ago, he was saying that some of the people had, at that time, just like in every age, had a common name. Just like in 2017, the most three, the three most popular boys' names were, have a guess, can you name one? In this country, newborns born in this country, what were the main popular names? Say it again. Mohammed, now that's an interesting name, isn't it? But, but I think the thing is, it's spelt in different ways. And so that's not so popular. But it's a good one to say. Oliver. Let's just have silence for Joe for getting the top name easily like that. That was enough silence. That was great. Lovely. So Oliver, Harry and George, they're the top three names for newborn boys in 2017. In Jesus' time, you might say, oh, Judas was a popular name. And that was because it was the Greek form of Judah. And so Judah, we want to hear about Judah, don't we? Because that was all about Israel and the people of God. So there's a lot of people called Judas. Not so much now. And next week, Jean's going to be speaking about Judas and we'll hear more about him. Uh, but then there are people called Simon. There's a couple of Simon disciples and other disciples that had the same name as each other. So these disciples, were, we understand a lot less, but they would have seen Jesus performing miracles and saying things, and just like the other disciples that we know a lot about. Let's think about this chap here first then. So why has he got these three different names? Well, Jude and Judas are very similar, but it might be that just as some people call me Mr. Stevenson, like when I'm in a school, and some people call me John, and I'm the same person, so it could be something like that. They might have had the first name and the second name. So some people would call them by the first name, and some people might call them by the second name. So that's one possibility why uh, Thaddeus, Judas and Jude is the same person. Now, I've got a bit of a, a list of things that you can read about here. Because Judas, this Judas, asks a question, and that's the only thing in the Bible we know about him. So in John 14, verse 22, it says, Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, so John was making a big distinction about it, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And this word show, it's a Greek word which is physically demonstrate. So we're thinking that Judas was perhaps politically orientated and he wanted Jesus to be the Messiah who was going to get rid of the Romans because a lot of Jews at that time, a lot of people there just didn't want the Romans to be ruling over them, to be occupying the promised land. I think it preached in Arabia, Syria, Mesopotamia, Armenia and Persia. And he was possibly martyred in Beirut by being clubbed to death. 
Simon the Zealot might have been killed at the same time. Now, if you're interested in knowing the sort of chapter and verse, as it were, of who said this sort of thing, I can tell you afterwards. Because you don't want to just be looking at it and thinking, well, did John make that up? Because it just like, sounds like a good story. I haven't. Lots of people over the years from like the second century, the third century, the fourth century, wrote things down like this. And so if you're interested in knowing more about it, I've, I've bought several books over the last sort of month or so about it. So you could have a look at those if you want to. But we're fitting four people in. So we know very little about him, but that's what we do know about him so far. What about this next chap, James the Less or Younger? And in the Greek, we've got the uh, Greek word micros. Now, of course, micros, micro. And I was imagining him sort of talking to his friends, perhaps. And he might say, I'm James, but I'm the less important one. I'm the one that's less celebrated than the other James, the one who's son of Zebedee. And I wonder how that made him feel. And it might be less, micros, because either he was smaller than the other James, or he might have been younger than the other James. So that's why we call him James the less or younger, because maybe of his stature, or maybe he was just younger than the other James that we know a lot about. Here's another chap. We're rushing through them, but the application at the end, that's going to take a while. So, James, the, the uh, son of Alfred. Oh, yeah, oh, I get so excited about reading the Bible, don't you? This has really excited me this week because uh, as I was reading about him and thinking about him, so this James, son of Alpheus, Luke 6.15, if you were going to read Mark 2.14, you'll read about Matthew that Paul talked about last week. And it says, Matthew, son of Alpheus. Now, of course, like we're saying, there's common names in the Bible, just like Oliver and other names at the moment. So it might be a different Alpheus. But some scholars think that James the Less, or Younger, was the brother of Matthew. Because there were a few brothers in the, in the disciples. So they're thinking maybe he was a brother. And maybe they're thinking Alpheus, his dad, was the Cleopas. Remember about Mr. Stevenson? And John, depending where I am, or son, or whatever Jill wants to call me at the time, then it's, it's, it's all positive and lovely. But you know, Alpheus might be Cleopas, who went to Emmaus, but Jesus stopped them from going there, really, and got them to go back to Jerusalem. So it's possible, some scholars think, that Alpheus, James the Less, or James the Younger's dad, actually saw Jesus after he'd been resurrected. And his mother might have been a friend of Jesus' mother. And we think that James the Less was stoned in Jerusalem. Then his bones was moved to Constantinople. And then they were moved to Rome. Because people years ago were fascinated by these, the bones or any sort of stuff from the disciples. They wanted to have them there. So this emperor, Constantine, he had this church built which hopefully he was, well, was planning to have all 12 apostles' bones there. It didn't succeed. And then things were moved around, so a lot of the things went to Rome in the St. Peter's Basilica. So, yeah, we're not into that sort of things now, but a thousand years ago and before and a bit after, we'd have been interested in having someone's finger, wouldn't we, or something like that. 
doesn't interest us now because we're sort of, we want to follow Jesus. But at the time, it was like, that was interesting to some. How about this next person? Simon the Zealot. When we think about Jesus' teaching, sometimes we remember he said, love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. I wonder what Simon, this Simon, thought about that. Simon the Zealot. He was a politically active person who wanted to overthrow the Romans violently. He wasn't just a pacifist, sort of saying, oh, I hope they go one day. He was out and out wanting the Romans away. And his group of people, you might know about the 70 AD uh, sacking of Jerusalem, it was the zealots that had a lot to do with that, the Romans reacting against what they were doing. And so you might sort of think, hmm, Simon the Zealot, he wouldn't have liked the Romans because that was his political stance. But wasn't there a, a person in the disciple, one of the disciples, that was on the side of the Romans before he became a disciple? And you're going to nod your head because last week Paul was reminding us about Matthew, how he was a a tax collector. And so he was on the side of the Romans. It was just like maybe in the Second World War and other wars when people were occupied by a certain force and then some people would be on the side of the occupiers and the the other people would be really anti what this person was doing. So I can imagine... Maybe Simon looking at Matthew, because he probably knew him, and saying, Jesus, how come you made him a disciple? Don't you know what he's like? Don't you know what he's been doing for these years? He's on the side of the Romans. Surely that's not a good thing. I can imagine that. I bet there was a bit of bickering or a bit of a, a pregnant silence sometimes, just silence, just looking at each other and saying, wow. But that's the amazing thing about who Jesus called. Because he didn't call all the disciples to be best pals together. He's called them to be like the church is. All different people, different views and different ideas. And yet with one head. I wonder, the next bit. Part of the political group who wanted to violently overthrow Herod Antipas and Rome. Yeah, but... People think, again, I've got things written down if you want to see where. People think he preached in Egypt, Libya, Spain, Britain, the Middle East and Persia. And there's people that really know it and they've got sort of all this documentation about he came to Britain. Now, of course, the Romans would have been in this country for 100 years before Simon came to Britain. And it's perfectly feasible because of all the Roman roads and the ways of coming around their empire that he could have made it. Remember, some of the disciples went to Persia and India and went north, went south. So it's perfectly possible that Simon went northwest and came to Britain. It's ever so interesting. At the same time in Britain, there was this lady that most of you would have heard of, Boudicca or Bodicea. And she was very much like Simon the Zealot because she wanted to overthrow the Romans as well. Get them out of here. We don't want the Romans here. But uh, Simon wouldn't have lasted long 
in Britain only because Boudicca was trying to kill all the foreigners in this country. So Simon knew that if he stayed in this country, he'd probably been killed by Boudicca or Bodicea. So he might have preached in London, but then heard Boudicca is on a way, so he went back to uh, the continent again. There's lots of evidence about it. Remember, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the good news. And these 12 disciples would have taken Jesus at his word and said, yeah, I'm going all over the world, the known world. And so, yeah, it's perfectly feasible that Simon the Zealot came to this country 2,000 years ago. One more. Bartholomew or Nathaniel. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke, we read about Bartholomew and he's in the lists. But in the Gospel of John, we don't read about Bartholomew, we read about Nathaniel, Mr. Stevenson, John. People think it's the same fella. Because uh, it's really interesting because when you see Bartholomew, he's always connected to Philip. And in John's Gospel, Nathaniel is connected to Philip. It's just like, if you think of Morecambe, who do you think of? Early Wise. If you think of, I've written someone else down. If you think of Stan Lovell, who do you think of? Oliver Hardy. If you think of Bud Flanagan, who do you think of? No idea. <laughs> Bud Flanagan, Chesney Allen. Flan underneath the arches. Remember the song? Yeah. So Flanagan and Allen from the 1920s and 30s, they were famous separately, but together they were even more famous. Just like Philip and Bartholomew. Phil and Bart, I've been thinking about them as this week, because if you saw one, you'd see the other. They were a right pair of good people together. Bartholomew was a normal person from a normal place. And just perhaps like all these other disciples, there was nothing really significant about him. And today we don't know so much about these people. I've read quite a few pages and I could have read extracts from what these scholars think and all of that. But that's what it is in a, sort of in a nutshell, what we know about all of them. Not very much at all. And so you might sort of think... They must be inferior disciples. Otherwise, Jesus would have... Otherwise, yeah, the Gospels would have had more about them. Perhaps you just think they're extras to the story. And at the end of the film, they wouldn't even get a credit for it. I wonder, do you feel like these disciples? We don't know much about them now. And you might sort of think, well, don't know much. They're unknown unimportant, unloved. And maybe you feel like that as a disciple of Jesus as well. But obviously, I've got some great news. Jesus said something really important. He said, five sparrows are sold for two pennies, aren't they? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Why? Even all the hairs on your head have been counted. Stop being afraid. You are worth more than a bunch of sparrows. And that's Luke 12, verses 6 and 7. So these disciples, the four we've heard about, were definitely chosen by Jesus to be his disciples for a reason. We might not know about them now, 
But at the time, they were doing fantastic things for God. And after Jesus had ascended, they carried on traveling and they were doing great things for God. But maybe we just think they are unknown, unimportant, unloved. But that's not true. They were known, they were important, they were loved. And you are too. Jesus knows all about you. God is with you. So whether we're feeling great about it or not so great, we know that God is with us. You've probably noticed, because it's fairly obvious, that I've been using this phrase a lot today. Not by spoken words, but this under-construction theme has been on nearly every slide, either in a really obvious manner or just in a subtle way. So what's the theme of today, really? Discipleship is a process. We can read about what the disciples did and say, oh yeah, they spent three years with Jesus, but then they spent decades and decades being influenced by God and listening to him and doing things of what God said. And because discipleship is a process, the biggest thing in my life that I want to remember is God hasn't finished with me yet. And because of that, I shouldn't be finished with me yet either. And as we learn more about these 12 disciples over the next few weeks, sometimes we might be challenged by what we hear about them. But God wants to challenge us. He doesn't want us just to sit around and just say, oh, that's okay. They, that was a different time. I've got, I've got to go to work. I'm, I'm busy. I've got my family commitments. God is saying, be challenged and listen. Just as we spend time together or spend time on your own, reading about who these disciples were. So already we've looked at this slide, thinking about our twofold focus. But for me, it's that whistle that is one of the most important things of that. Because as we've said before, if you're in London, you'll hear a lot of sirens, and it's only sometimes you'll hear a whistle. And the whistle is by the policemen, on their out, the outriders on their motorbikes, sort of stopping the traffic because the Queen's coming in a big limousine or the Prime Minister is coming. And so they're stopping the traffic and it's the whistle that you hear so differently from the sirens because that's all merges, it's just what people are used to. So God is challenging me to listen out for his whistle that he wants to get my attention and wants to get your attention as well so that we don't stay the same and just be happy with how we are, but we listen to the whistle. Just like rugby yesterday, Wales won, I seem to know. But, yeah, but the thing was, the referee had a whistle, and if the people on the teams ignored him, they'd be in big trouble, wouldn't they? Because the referee, with his whistle, was getting their attention and saying, don't do that, do this. It also reminded me during, the week, during this week as well that the whistle was used in the First World War when people were in the trenches and then the whistle went. It meant action. 
no time to dawdle. Get over. The enemy is real. The enemy needs to be defeated. And so as we listen to Jesus whistling us, so we can say, Lord, help me to remember the enemy is real. Help me to remember, Lord, that I am in a battle. Help me to know, Lord, that you're with me and spurring me on, encouraging me to go forward. Over the last few weeks, we've been thinking about four different people and uh, we had four different themes, really. So the first time, when it was a general introduction, we were thinking, just like today, that being a disciple is a process and we had to fan into flame to be a disciple. Then the next week, when Nick was speaking about Philip, he was talking about opening the door for Jesus to let him move in, to let him do his stuff. And then last week, when Paul was speaking about Matthew or Levi, we thought about that our background doesn't rule us out from being a disciple and doesn't rule us in from being a disciple. It's a choice. When we hear Jesus say, come and be my disciple, we just have to say yes. And today, we're just briefly thinking about all the disciples even those that are not very well known, but all the disciples are important and needed. So when we look backwards at those things, it helps us to know what we should be doing for the future, to have an agenda. And as we've said in the past as well a few times now, that perhaps the agenda for this year is to embrace God wherever we are, whatever day it is, on our own, with others, no matter what the cost. We are on the cusp. We've thought about that a few times. But if we are on the cusp, then what is your next move? We're a collection of people, individuals, and being together. But that means if one person says, yes, Lord, I know we're on the cusp, and gets on with something, that's brilliant. But God wants to encourage all of us to move forward with him and to use the stories of the disciples to understand that he's calling all of us in different ways. William Carey said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And in every generation since Jesus has been on the earth, so there's been people that have followed Jesus, kind of, yeah, Lord, I'll do what you say, And there's been people that have been disciples of Jesus. Lord, whatever you say, I'm going to do it. You're priority number one. I'm going to follow what you say. An easy thing for me to say just now is 2,000 years ago, we've heard it already, there was no plan B. Jesus called these 12 disciples and said, I trust you. I know you're all different from each other. You have different professions, different ages, different coloured hair, different statures. But I can see your potential. And I know that when the Holy Spirit comes and fills you, so you're going to do magnificent things for me. Today, there's no plan B. All of us are plan A. All of us are Jesus' disciples. He's calling us 
to work for him and to be anointed by him to work and to listen and to do what he says. Sometimes when you go to a restaurant, you can have your mains and side orders. And perhaps some of us have had Jesus as our side order for far too long. I'll go to church a bit. I'll read the Bible a bit. It's not the way it should be. There's no plan B today. We should make God our main course, our priority, the most important thing that we consider at the start of the day, in the middle of the day, at the end of the day. So today, we are God's plan A. And God just wants us to remember that not just to feel hurt or challenged by it now, but tomorrow to say, thank you, Lord, for making me as I am. Thank you, Lord, that I am your plan A for a purpose. Thank you, Lord, for making me your child. And thank you, Lord, for making me your ambassador to tell other people about you. So just as the disciples, all of them were called by God. So we are called by God today to do our part And that's what we have to do, do our part to do the things he's calling us to do. So we're going to pray, and then Jill's going to help us respond and worship God together. So thank you, Lord, that just 2,000 years ago, you called 12 men of all kinds of different backgrounds and ideologies and, and things. And thank you today, you've called us to be your disciples Thank you, Lord, that we're your plan A. Lord, help us to go out in your strength. Help us, Lord, to know that you are with us every day. Help us, Lord, to follow you with all our hearts so that your kingdom can be extended and your church encouraged and built up. Lord, we ask it in your name. Amen.